Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Despite consumer demand for new eating experiences, we currently rely on only 1% of edible plants and a whopping 60% of our calories come from just four crops. A disjoint that experts say represents a missed marketing opportunity and a threat to the safety of the food supply, as well as the health of the planet and people. According to the Crop Trust, which is an international organization tasked with safeguarding crop diversity, our reliance on such a limited range of crops means the food supply is vulnerable to drought, pests, disease, and a changing climate. Likewise, the world's current over-reliance on rice, maize, wheat, and potatoes for that 60% of our calories is already taking a toll on biodiversity. According to the Crop Trust, the variants of corn available in Mexico are down 80% since 1930, and India has lost 90% of its strains of rice, while the U.S. has lost 90% of the fruits and vegetable varieties that once were available here. In response to this crisis, the Crop Trust has launched a Food Forever initiative, which calls on politicians, farmers, chefs, businesses, and individuals to, quote, drive positive change in the way we conserve, grow, sell, and consume crop and livestock diversity. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup Nuts podcast, Food Forever champions Chef Eric Oberhosen and CEO of Colorado-based Choice Markets, Mike Fogarty, discuss the extent of the threat to the world's biodiversity, as well as the risk it poses to people on the planet. They also share how they and others across the food and beverage industry are helping to preserve biodiversity in a way that also creates new marketing opportunities for innovative entrepreneurs, as well as established brands. So according to Oberholzen, the world's current reliance on just 12 crops for 80% of calories stems in large part from good intentions to feed more people for less and to improve farmers' lives by creating a production system that was more predictable. Unfortunately, he explains, these efforts also triggered unintentional negative consequences. As agriculture became industrialized and commoditized and and, and, and there was an effort to uh, feed as many people as possible um, for a profit at scale um, and with predictable uh, shelf life, uh, whether that was in transport or on the actual shelf. And then the advent of food science and big, big food um, there was this shift from family or regional heirloom cropping to uh, much bigger, massive uh, farms that were uh, growing for predictive uh, commodity markets. And those commodity markets demanded uh, volumes and price, uh, fixed prices um, and really made great efforts to mitigate uh, disease and maximize uh, profits and yields. And what what we ended up with were things like the five by six tomato, which is five 
rows by six rows that fits in a, in a box predictably and can be shipped anywhere in the world without spoilage. Um, and we were very successful in that. problem is they don't taste like tomatoes. They taste like the cardboard that they're in. Uh, corn has the same story that um, it, it was engineered uh, to 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 grow at certain yield rates uh, with uh, a resistance to disease and now a resistance to glyphosate roundup and it can be used for animal feed it can be used for fuel or it can be used uh, for uh, any you know any any host of um, ingredients uh, that make up your your cornflakes or your corn oil or your cornstarch or whatever. Um, and if you go down the list, you'll see a lot of corn in, in, in your in your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, so it really just came down to economics um, versus uh, flavor or uh, diversity, diversity in flavor uh, or, or texture or, or, um, or even ingredients. He also notes that the resulting monocropping is taking a toll on the health of the planet, and when combined with climate changes, threatens the long-term safety of the world's food supply. When you have four or five major crops, um, then you uh, then you create this monocrop system, uh, which means there's zero diversity in those habitats. So it might be cornfields for miles and miles. And all of the diversity, not just within the, the corn population, but uh, the pollinators and the the um, the, the soil complexity, uh, the birds, the 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 other um, species native uh, plants that um, make up our natural environment are just uh, pushed away and to the side, and it has a massive impact on, on, on our ecosystems, our waterways, our soil quality, erosion. Um, and, and then also we have a tendency to uh, maximize the use of chemical inputs uh, and pesticides and fungicides, uh, which further complicate uh, the impacts on, on the environment. And from a food security perspective, if you're relying on just a few crops, if there's crop failure, um, then it can be a massive impact uh, in the food system. And as as the climate begins to shift, we need more plant diversity, seed stock diversity to um, begin to design for uh, new new uh, growing conditions. Uh, and right now we're at, at risk. And you know the best historic example is the the potato famine uh, that we all might uh, remember and reference. If you have this m- massive reliance on one uh, ingredient and then it fails, um, then you you literally can starve a population. And 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 we're at risk um, whether it's with cacao. Uh, in some in some cases, coffee, and right now bananas. Uh, we're we're seeing uh, uh, single species uh, crop failure, and we don't have the diversity to uh, to design around it. Um, and that becomes a problem when it's an ingredient that is 
that is um, very much a, a, a staple in our in our food system. Even as Crop Trust and Food Forever strive to raise awareness about the risk of monocropping, Oberholzen says that he fears current food production trends are perpetuating the problem. In particular, he says he worries that food manufacturers' interpretation of the booming plant-based trend could lead to an over-reliance on peas. Plant-based um, meat, like Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat, are really trying to solve for, um, you know, lessening the impact of animal production on environment and, uh, uh, you know, global warming, et cetera. Um, But uh, I think the the risk is that we're trying to solve one problem, but we're forgetting about health and wellness. We're forgetting about the fact that now we're going to probably monocrop, uh, you know, mung beans or whatever. And we may find ourselves in in the same place uh, trying to solve one thing. It used to be hunger. Now it's um, now it, now it's animal production, uh, but causing a lot of other um, you know un, unexpected consequences that are are not good for us, uh, both possibly environmentally, certainly in terms of health and wellness. Uh, so I worry we're 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 just repeating history. But as Fogarty points out, subtle changes in how CPG manufacturers, restaurants, and others respond to emerging trends, including plant-based, also turn the tide on the current crisis and encourage biodiversity by introducing a broader range of ingredients to consumers at a time when many already have shown a willingness to try new foods. The American diet is, you know, has a lot of meat and dairy in it, obviously, as well, which has impacts to your health and impacts to the environment. And, and you know, um, as these uh, kind of plant-based proteins uh, become more and more uh, scientific and taste closer and closer to the real thing, you know, we're, we're seeing a pretty wholesale shift uh, of folks towards, you know, these, uh, you know, vegan and vegetarian offerings. Um, you know, and it's, and it's not just like, you know, the vegans and vegetarians that are buying this, it's, it's the folks that are flexitarian or, you know, want to start eating less meat, which is which is a huge, you know, piece of the population, you know, at least in Denver where we're located. So, I mean, it's, yeah, no doubt that uh, it's a balance, right? I mean, as Eric talked about, it's, you know, a burger is a still bur- a burger is a burger and you shouldn't be eating an Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger every day, just like you shouldn't be eating the beef burger every day. But, you know, I do think, um, at least in our experience, it, it's a it's a good first step for, for folks um, that want to, to either lessen their impacts on the environment or, um, you know, they want to eat less proteins, lower cholesterol, et cetera. Um, you know, it's a good first step. And then hopefully driving towards a true, more plant-based uh, you know, diet, where, which is, is truly based on, like, r- r- raw or, uh, you know, minimally processed vegetables, which is, which is you know, continuing to increase, which, you know, I think it's past few years it's increased by, like, 600%. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, no doubt it, it speaks to the, the, the broader conversation around diversity, though, right? You know, as, as Eric said, you could be in a situation where pea protein is, is the next uh, – you know, soybean. So it's, 
you, you do have to be careful and, and you have to communicate that to your customers. I mean, and, uh, and we do it via offering a lot of, you know, different options that are more satiating like the impossible burger, but also like a really fresh salad from like pristine greens that are grown or vertically farmed uh, a mile away from the restaurant and organic produce and stuff. So we, we do offer this, uh, kind of, um, you know, a uh, diverse menu that hopefully, you know, just it provides options and choices to folks that, you know, are um, looking to add some diversity to their to their uh, diet. To further encourage a more diverse diet, Fogarty suggests that retailers rethink not just the foods they offer, but also how it's presented. So, for example, he explained that at Choice Market, does this in part by eschewing the large format store that was built for suburban America in favor of a smaller hybrid model that's a cross between a fast casual restaurant, a small format grocery, and a convenience store. Uh, looking at the landscape right now, you have uh, large grocery stores that are 100,000 square feet that were built for suburban America, really. Um, it made sense back in the 70s and 80s when you know, we're living uh, in the suburbs and it was supporting a five-mile radius. But uh, as folks move more and more into cities, obviously that, that model and that size of store just doesn't fit today's, like, urban millennial who may or may not have a car. They, they you know, they, they go to the store four or five times a week, not, like, once on a Sunday. Uh, they value convenience big time. So, like, spending 45 minutes at even the nicest grocery store still – is uh, is not super convenient and and so you have you know that side of the model which um, we feel hasn't innovated all that much and then certainly on convenience stores which is the other kind of end of the spectrum you know it, it, they certainly have haven't innovated in terms of their product selection and their SKU mix and just in general their offering uh, and, and so we felt there was something in between that really uh, addressed today's uh, or, you know, consumer, which, you know, they value health, they value convenience, they're willing to pay up a premium price for, you know, diverse, really nutritious, like, great ingredients, um, which, you know, we, we, we offer both on the, on the grocery side and, and the back of the house in our kitchen. Um, and, you know, what's nice is we have this real symmetry where, you know, what we cook with is what we source and sell, uh, on the on the front of the house, and it's and it's usually you know based on as I said hyper local. We have a hundred plus Colorado companies we work with, um, but we also bring in uh, ingredients like fonio, moringa, uh, and jackfruit. Um, you know to really introduce folks to um, you know these ingredients that that aren't your core staple potatoes, rice, etc. Like. Uh, and, and and do it in a way that's uh, still in line with like uh, the the American palate. So it could be a you know, barbecue jackfruit sandwich, or it could be you know um, a fonio that we make into like a couscous. So like these flavors that they they're they're familiar with. Um, yeah, and Eric certainly helped us with that and, and introducing these uh, menu items in a really you know careful way. Much of what Oberholzer is helping Fogarty to do at his retail stores draws on the methods he also used at his restaurant chain, Tender Greens, 
which he started 15 years ago to help democratize good food. As we look at the, uh, you know, the biggest worries of our time, which is global warming, uh, uh, deforestation, environmental degradation, uh, obesity rates and, and food-related disease, and even cultural dilution, uh, we, we can't we can't ignore it. And as chefs, as restaurateurs, as people in the food business, um, Mike and I are, are choosing to, to lead with uh, positive impact through, through food. And, and part of that impact is uh, celebrating and introducing and, um, and, and supporting a more diverse uh, food system. Uh, and, and that means, uh, not turning our backs on, on some of the things that we all love, but adding in uh, some new ingredients that we believe are uh, you, you know, at the edge of the food system now, but have the potential to become mainstream. In a sense, uh, looking at uh, something like Fonio, uh, the same way that 25 years ago we might have looked at quinoa, uh, back when nobody knew what it was and nobody could pronounce it, and now you can't go anywhere without bumping into five different versions of quinoa. And we hope that we'll continue to create success stories, product success stories along the way. Not that we're not because we're investors in those ingredients, but because we're invested in the future of food. As this movement continues to evolve and consumers become more adventurous about what they eat, Overholzer says he sees a few new key ingredients gaining traction among some of the more familiar staples. The first is Fonio, which he explains is a nutrient-dense, gluten-free cereal that's easy to prepare, versatile, and has a strong supply chain. You cook it exactly like you would a traditional couscous. So it's one part uh, Fonio, two parts uh, boiling liquid. Uh, and it cooks up in five minutes. So it's super easy both at home and, and in the professional kitchen. Uh, you can swap it out for anything that you might be using uh, a couscous for. And it is incredibly important to West Africa, uh, to the microeconomies of, of West Africa and in 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 sort of the drought, um, uh, you know, the drought, at-risk uh, environments where uh, Fonio thrives and other things uh, don't. And there's always pressure to uh, to replace something like a Fonio with a commodity crop that's going to require a tremendous amount of chemical inputs and, uh, and other uh, things that aren't going to be good for farmer for the soil or for the local environment and and then there's a you know the added risk that you lose a a native crop that is really important culturally uh, to the people of that part of the world but also uh, a potential you know uh, revenue source um, because it's differentiated and and if you can create demand you can create um, some positive economic impacts as well as uh, environmental impacts and protection of a drought-resistant uh, crop that's native to that part of the world. 
So it's, it, you know, not only is it, is it a, an easy uh, ingredient to work into the repertoire of a menu, uh, but it's by, by buying Fonio, you're supporting a part of the world that needs support, um, but support in a way that allows them to continue doing what they've been doing for, for centuries. Um, uh, but just at a, at a, at, at economies that, that, that are helpful to them. Another key ingredient to watch is moringa, which companies like Cooley Cooley have helped bring to consumers' attention in recent years. Moringa is another uh, ingredient that has um, protein density that's important to uh, to certain parts of Africa, and then for us, it's it's a great functional ingredient, and uh, you know I use it in in smoothies because it. Um, not only for a protein source, but more importantly for an energy and focus um, uh, ingredient, you know, before the gym or before a meeting to, to have a little bit of uh, Moringa uh, will give you a little bit more um, focus and, and it's called brain energy uh, without all the jitteriness of, of coffee. Uh, so much like uh, a chaga or, or a lion's maid, uh, it's a functional ingredient that also is environmentally really important to certain parts of the world and economically uh, important to uh, certain parts of the world that we can we can sponsor while enjoying the the benefits of them. A third ingredient that Oberholzer says he's watching peak consumers' interest is jackfruit. Jackfruit's another plant uh, a plant-based. Uh, product that uh, it's a plant, obviously, but uh, uh, performs texturally like uh, uh, oftentimes pork um, and is a great way to take pressure off, uh, um, you know, the, the, the demand on, on, on animal protein, but also uh, introduces a new ingredient into the food system that uh, we think um, has broad appeal and uh, important, um, uh, important economic and environmental uh, responsibilities in, 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 in certain tropical environments that, that really need that, that income and also need uh, something that's native to, to celebrate. Fogarty also says that retailers, entrepreneurs, and restaurateurs can support biodiversity by using more common or already familiar ingredients, but in new ways and as alternatives for some of those more frequently used ingredients. It's just thinking out of the box a little bit. It doesn't have to be uh, super, you know, um, you know, exotic ingredient like Fonio. You can you can look at your your dishes and and you know whether you want to let's say you want to do a pasta dish. Well, maybe instead of just like a whole, you know. A bleach white, you know, pasta. Why not, you know, use a spaghetti squash that's seasonal uh, and it's, you know, uh, lower in carbs and much more nutritious, and then just, you know, provide some diversity <clears throat> instead of just a, a plain pasta dish. So, you know, that's something we're doing in the fall is, you know, is using spaghetti squash as as a base for for our bowls, um, you know, and it's uh, that that type of thing where you, you just, you know. diversity can come in a lot of different ways and and, um, it's just looking instead of just doing a rice dish or a pasta dish, like 
try to, whether it be plant forward or not, um, look at the broader, you know, your broader supply chain and the sources you have available to you and come up with something cool and creative. And, hey, it may work, it may not, um, you know, but it's, it's worth it to give it a shot and, you know, see if it resonates with customers. So, you know, there's, there's things you can kind of do as a restaurateur, as a chef, or even at home, you know, to, to incorporate diversity in small ways like that as well. Oberholzer also sees a marketing opportunity for CPG companies to draw consumer awareness to different cultures and drive demand for more biodiverse crops by using multiple ingredients from the same region. Yeah, for food producers, this is an invitation to innovate. And probably the most interesting thing that came up in the last six months for me was this idea of doing a, a cracker around crop rotation. So um, you might have uh, eight different ingredients, crops that are rotated throughout the year uh, so that, um, you know, the soil is being maintained and you're not stressing any one plot out. Um, and then to celebrate that, to tell that story and to capture the uh, the diversity of, of crops or ingredients that, that are being rotated through that field, uh, then you create a, a cracker from it. Um, so you get, you know, that complexity of eight flavors and textures, but also you begin to tell a story and support a system uh, that is more responsible. Another way of looking at that is a single, let's say single farm or single plantation um, ingredient. And that could be, I'll just use it as as an easy example you might have a plantation in in uh, Costa Rica, for example, that has incredible diversity, maybe 450 different varieties of plants and fruits and what have you. And how can you begin to to produce uh, a product not with that many ingredients or components in it, but uh, let's let's say six to eight um, diverse ingredients that make up that let's call it a chowder. Um, uh, ben and Jerry's years ago, being so uh, far ahead of the curve, uh, had rainforest crunch. Um, it's sort of that idea that you uh, you support uh, the protection of, of of an area. It could be um, a, a small micro uh, climate somewhere in Colombia, where you have incredible biodiversity, but that biodiversity is being threatened by big uh, food companies that would take down the entire uh, plantation or even the forest uh, to plant corn or wheat or rice or sugar cane. And, uh, and, and for whether it's chefs, whether it's, um, you know, food manufacturers uh, to come up with something that celebrates the diversity of, of a particular re- region As these potential solutions illustrate, supporting biodiversity can be just as good for business as it can be for the health of the planet and people. And with that, we reach the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you join me again for another installment. And to ensure that you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week. (music) 